and welcome to the Giving Voice to Depression podcast, produced in partnership with the A.B. Corcor Foundation for Mental Health. I'm Terry, the creator and co-host of this podcast. I've lived with depression most of my life, and I know how easy it can be to feel all alone in the experience. I'm not alone, and you aren't either. And I'm Dr. Anita Sands, a licensed clinical psychologist with a number of my own diagnoses, all of which bring a certain amount of anxiety and depression along with them. There is great power in shared experiences. We share our own as we engage in intimate and candid conversations with our weekly guests, exploring different perspectives on and experiences with depression. We keep it real because depression is real. We keep it hopeful because there truly is hope in spite of what depression tells you. Hello, Anita. Hi, Terry. You know, the word suicide tends to get people's attention. Yeah. Who, they wonder, and how. And the most vexing and persistent question always seems to be, why? Mm. But when suicide prevention comes up, it seems there's less interest. That's someone else's job. I'm not qualified. That's too high risk and too scary of a thing for the average person to get involved in. This month, which is Suicide Prevention Awareness Month, we're going to hear from suicide attempt survivors as we discuss one of society's most complex and taboo subjects. We begin today with a guest from five years ago who has such a casual and informed way of discussing suicide that we're proud to revisit his insights. Mark Hennick is a suicide attempt survivor who has become an internationally recognized mental health advocate. His TEDx talk, Why We Choose Suicide, had more than 6 million views on Last Check. And before we get into his personal story of how he progressed from being chronically suicidal, we want to set the stage for the month and explore some of the common myths and misconceptions about suicide and suicide prevention. Our hope is to offer a more nuanced and accurate understanding of those important issues so that they can be viewed through a more informed and empathetic lens. Mm, That's so important. For this discussion, we made a list of seven things we commonly hear about suicide, and we asked Mark to comment on each of them. Anita, you will also be sharing your insights from more than 25 years of working as a psychologist. So here again is Mark Hennick, giving his voice to depression. We begin with a common belief that people who are suicidal want to die. It's probably the most common myth that I hear uh, that people really want to die. Uh, and usually because the person themselves believe that. The person themselves argue that, that they, that they want to die, that they need to die. It's important to note a few things. First, not everyone who thinks about suicide is in a place of immediate risk or crisis. There's a range of suicidal thoughts. Someone can just want to be done without having any intentions of ending their life. Several of our guests have described that in terms of wishing they'd die in their sleep. The other extreme is someone who has a plan, the means to carry it out, and a time they intend to act. Those three factors are what we're trained to ask crisis line callers to determine risk. Also, not everyone who has ideations has depression, and not everyone who suffers from depression will have suicidal thoughts. But depression itself can limit your life view, almost like a horse wearing blinders. 
not only limiting your view, it also uh, has all kinds of other impacts on you. It makes you tired. It makes you irritable. It, it can lead to other health problems. So really what the person doesn't want to do is is deal with that kind of existential dread anymore, that pain anymore, that uh, difficulty that comes with that struggle. Uh, it's not necessarily that they want to die. It's that they don't want to live that way, I think. Yeah, in in all my years of of working with clients with depression, I I really don't think I've ever met a client who really wanted to die, um, but they just didn't want to live their life the way that it was. And so, if if there was any possible way that I could show them or help them to see that it actually could be different they were willing to reconsider. And I think this is really, really important. We have a lot of opportunity to to shift things. Uh, it's critically important. Mm-hmm. That's interesting, not one. Mm-mm. No, I have not. It, and, and again, it's more like 30 years, but I have not met anyone who said, I just want to die, period, end of story. It was always, I really want to die because I can't deal with this anymore or I can't handle the shame or the guilt that I'm feeling or there's always there's always a reason that if we could do something about that reason they wouldn't want to die anymore so that that's really important to remember it's not people are like hell-bent on dying that's that's not what it's about there are very few people so in love with death that they actually want to get there now they just are looking for life to be better easier, more meaningful, mm-hmm. less full of pain and suffering and sadness and guilt and and depression. Life can be less painful. It can be less full of suffering. We can actually change things enough to where death becomes the the worst evil. And that's what we have to do. We have to make that shift and that change so that you don't have to you don't have to stay here. Mm-hmm feeling mm-hmm. miserable forever. Mm-hmm. That's that's unacceptable. And I always say, we might have to stay here feeling miserable for a while because it's going to take a while to get therapy and medication and, and learning new, new skill sets and habits and getting those going. But it's not acceptable to leave you miserable right. and just say, be miserable, but don't choose death. Right. Those are not um, the only two choices. No. And that seems very, you know, a lack of compassion for somebody who's, you know, who's really, really in the pit. Yep. Agreed. So let's shift to the second misconception that we want to address. And that is the belief that suicide is a selfish act. I see where it comes from that you're not thinking or people think that you're not thinking of uh, the impact that it has on those around you. You're only thinking of yourself. Well, I would push back on that certainly based in my own experience. I, I can't speak to everybody's, but I was thinking about my family when I was standing on the edge of the bridge and, and every other time before that. I was thinking about how it would help them, how it would be the best thing for them uh, if they didn't have to deal with me anymore, the trouble that was me. So I thought I was doing them a favor. And really, in some ways, it, and it's a, a skewed view of things, but that's the definition of a mental illness, practically, um, I thought that I was doing something good for them. That's the opposite of selfish. So I, I think that people um, who, who believe that just don't take the time to get inside the head of somebody who's in that place. And that's the value of hearing from attempt survivors. That insight is a tool we can use to keep our loved ones safe. 
instead of general comments, which can be unhelpful because they don't communicate getting inside the head of somebody who's in that place, to use Mark's words. Imagine saying to someone who you know or fear has suicidal thoughts, I need you to know that there is no time or circumstance that I would be better off without you. None. Ever. So if you ever have that thought, know that it's a lie and that your depression is trying to trick and control you. Well, you know, so guilt is by far the most common emotion that I hear from suicide loss survivors, that that they wish they could have done something. Uh, and it's usually parents or spouses, because the two most common groups of suicides are um, adolescents, usually boys, uh, and middle-aged men, middle-aged men being the most common. Um, so people always think, I wish I had have noticed something, or what did I miss, or how did I contribute? I actually turn that around a bit on the person, too, uh, because what we notice is that the people closest to the ones that are struggling are usually the least able to see what's going on. Uh, and that's because they love them so much. It's not because they're not paying attention. It's because they're so close to them. What parent on earth would ever want to create a scenario in their mind where their little boy dies or where their, their, their partner that they've uh, been with every single night and that they've married and shared so many great experiences with that they'd someday end their own life? We don't want to think about these things because, uh, and psycho deeply psychological, it's not just a choice that we don't want to think about them, because it's painful, uh, and because we that's just never even entering into the equation, so we block that out. We limit that out as a, as a possibility. That's just how our mind works, to avoid pain in that way. So, you know, I, I think that while, yes, there is more we can do to help people learn how to notice the signs and symptoms, uh, often it's the people who are closest up to us that, that psychologically um, are, are the least prepared to notice. Well, I agree with him that, you know, humans accommodate and learn to live with things because that's how we survive situations where it doesn't look like there's the possibility for immediate change. But we can accommodate to like the slow, steady decline in a loved one without getting that, hey, wake up, you know, there's a problem here until there's actually like it gets to crisis level. Mm -hmm. And he's making such a good point that if noticing and getting t in touch with the level of pain or stress that, that somebody that you care about is in, nobody really wants to see that and, and feel that because they are actually caring, compassionate. They're going to feel that pain and stress too. So it's another way that we sort of protect ourselves is to, to kind of not see it, not mm. see it. But that's only protecting ourselves and not the person who's hurting. Right, and perhaps in right. danger, but but it is a normal thing. That's mm -hmm. one of the things that I think is so important is to recognize is that we do this not because we don't care yep. about the person, and not because we aren't strong enough or willing to feel that pain or that stress. It it really is, I think, a part of this. We accommodate, we accommodate. There's no crisis, you know. It's hard to see, so we just kind of just kind of don't do anything about it and until we have to do something about it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I know that there's, um, I know I had sent something to you, Terry, about the seize the awkward, um, dot org. Yeah. And, and I love that because it's really kind of helping people to get over this sort of, I don't know what to say or if I should even say anything kind of place, you know, mm -hmm. um, it's, it's like, let's move the dial to dealing with it when it's just kind of awkward, but not, crisis level yeah. yet yeah you know and i really like that we need we need to do that with our friends and our family members mm -hmm. our loved ones mm -hmm. 
Okay, so now we will move to the belief that suicides often or usually occur out of the blue with no warning at all. Yeah, so, I mean, the data doesn't support this. Uh, in the large majority of suicides, there is some kind of uh, sign that it might happen. Now, that doesn't mean uh, that it's going to be super obvious. Uh, it doesn't mean that uh, somebody's going to come out and say uh, that they're going to kill themselves, although that happens a lot, too. Uh, they could be that the person has a diagnosis, for example, of depression or anxiety uh, or some other chronic uh, physical health problem. They could be uh, withdrawing more. Uh, so there's lots of ways in which people uh, give off signs uh, that they might potentially be suicidal uh, or struggling. Uh, and I think the only way we can fully decipher those if we see is if we see them in the broader context of that person's life. Uh, and if it's a if it's a change from their baseline or if there's a theme here happening, um, it, it's not always so easy uh, to see that somebody might be at risk, of course, but there's almost always uh, uh, signs. So some warning signs are missed because they're subtle or we don't know or recognize them. Other times it's because we weren't intended to see them. People with mental health problems and illnesses, especially if they're suicidal, learn pretty early on to hide what they're going through as well because they're, they learn that it makes people uncomfortable, that it might isolate them further, and that's the last thing that they want is to be isolated even more. So it's this dual factor, I think, of people not recognizing the subtle, subtle signs and symptoms uh, and often the active suppression of signs on the, on the behalf of the person who's struggling. Related to that without warning belief is the idea that suicide is an impulsive act. Mark says there's some research to support that, but it's complicated. However, I, I wouldn't say that it just comes out of nowhere, that it's just an impulse that, that has no basis. Almost always there's something else going on. It's, it's generating from somewhere, whether it be depression or uh, anxiety or schizophrenia or, or something else going on. Uh, however, it, it is a cognitive pathway that people build, which means that it's something that they think about a lot. They plan it a lot in their head. And even if they don't realize they're planning, it might be an unconscious planning process. And then there's usually something that triggers it. Something seemingly mundane happens. And then for whatever reason, instead of saying, oh, that person broke up with me, you know, I'll work with that. That happens to everybody. They shoot down this other highway instead. And they go down this other way that says, no, I need to end my life because this is the worst thing in the world. And that moment is really what we're looking at is there's something going on here. There's something psychologically, uh, potentially neurologically uh, that we need to address. Um, so that impulse, I think, is a key factor. It is there. It does exist. Uh, but it's not like it's an impulse in isolation from context. The context is important. Yeah. So I like the way that he's talking about how there's a lot of track that's being laid before the, the train comes down. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we rarely decide to like impulsively book a flight to somewhere that we've never even had a thought about before or seen something online or read something about it or someone's said something to us. You know, so it's our thoughts, our fantasizing about that place and what it might be like to visit it. That lays the track. Mm. And we might never run the train down that track. But if it's there and we've thought about it, it's a lot more possible that one day you're just going to be like, you know what, I'm just going to book that flight. I'm just going to, I'm going to do it. And that is what he's talking about with these thoughts are there. And those thoughts that depression just continues to hammer you with, you know, the, the lies, but the thoughts that, you, you know, people would be better off without you and, you know, all of that stuff. It's just building that track. 
And, and yes, you may never run a train down a track that you've built, but if the track's there, it makes it a whole lot easier to just suddenly go, yep, we're doing that now. Mm. Boy, I've never thought about it that way. Yeah, yeah this, is, this is why dismantling that thought process and, and pulling, up the, pulling up those, you know, those tracks as fast as depression wants to lay it is so important. And when you can't do that anymore, you can't redirect, you can't challenge it, battle it, that's when you need help because you need somebody else to, to, to lift, lift that stuff mm-hmm. up. You, you, we just have to intervene way before the train is barreling down a track. We yep. have to be dismantling the track. That's what we mean when we talk about upstream suicide prevention, right? We don't wait until mm-hmm. we're... we're pulling someone who's drowning out of a stream, we, we want to go upstream and s- find out why they are falling in to elaborate on Desmond Tutu's quote that I That's often it. use. That's it. That's it. You got to do it before the impulse, because I mm-hmm. do believe that, that, that suicide attempt is an impulsive act. It doesn't, it just happens in a split second to go from, I've thought about this, I've been feeling this, I've, I've thought about how I would do it. So here's all that track again being laid. But the impulse takes just a second or two. But if we can notice the signs, we can notice that tracks being laid, even if it's awkward to ask about it or awkward to, to say, I'm here, is there anything you want to talk about? This is what I've been noticing. That's when it's critical. You are not likely going to be there in the impulse moment. It's all the moments before then that you have the opportunity to to do something to prevent a suicide attempt or to pre- prevent a suicide. Oh, it's such a heavy topic, but it's so important to talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm glad we're talking about it. And And anybody who struggled with this, I think, would be glad that we're talking about it, that other people would be willing to, to listen. Okay, so we're going to move on. There is no ambiguity about the next common idea. It is just plain wrong. The idea that someone who has made and survived a previous attempt or attempts is not serious about dying and doesn't need to be worried about. One of the most common predictors of suicide are prior attempts. Uh, And when people do have that impulse, when they're building that cognitive pathway in their head towards suicide, sometimes that takes uh, often increasingly um, serious suicide attempts. I mean, all all attempts are serious, but, you know, there's there's a, a degree to which they become more and more dangerous. And that certainly happened in my experience, you know, uh, until I'm, you know, standing on the edge of, uh, on an inch and a half of concrete at midnight alone, um, about to jump. So I think that there's a process here of people figuring it out as they go. Um, so if there are, especially if there's multiple attempts, uh, that means that we have to really take a closer look at, at what's going on here and try to figure out, do a better job of figuring out what's happening for that person. The sixth misconception we asked Mark to address is another one that really offends us. The comment that someone who talks about wanting to die and or has attempted suicide, particularly multiple times, is just trying to get attention. I run into this all the time, and I'm of the view that if that person is so in need of attention, so let's entertain for a minute that you're right. If that person is so in need of attention that they're willing to die to get it, just give them attention. What's like? Is that the worst thing? Is is your attention the most valuable thing in the world that you that you're unwilling to give it even to the point of somebody else dying? So I I think that that's just a completely baseless uh, stigma, and actually it makes the person 
person saying it looked like a really terrible person. I think so, too, because if you scream fire, right. you're also trying to get attention because you could die under, you know, either situation. Exactly. And that's what suicidality is, I think, at its core, is a fire alarm. That it's somebody, okay, yeah, sure, they want attention. That because there's something going on here, they're giving off all the signs. And then that's the same person who, when they go to hospital or when they eventually do, that everybody whispers, oh, nobody saw it coming. They were screaming at you that it was coming and nobody was hearing it because they just wanted attention. You know, so I I think that that's the least defensible uh, stigmatizing myth out there that people who die just, and I, I put the emphasis on the italics on the just, are doing it for attention. Yeah, you know, this is reminding me of a, a streaming series that I'm watching called The Bear. It, the entire story revolves around a, one of the, a family member who dies by suicide. And there's a scene that I just watched this past week. And it's, a, it's about a chef and restaurants and things like that. That's mm-hmm. But we, we have the chef who accidentally gets locked into the freezer. And the handle's broken and he can't get out and he's banging. And I just, I have this image of... You know, people who are starting to think about and contemplate suicide, they do try to communicate. They, it, it, Even the attempts are a form of communication so many times. And it's like if you were locked in this freezer, this horrible place where if you couldn't get out and somebody couldn't get you out, you would die eventually mm-hmm. of hypothermia. Like, wouldn't you be trying to get people's attention? Wouldn't you be banging, banging and banging, banging and banging? And like, yeah, and at what point... If you just are banging and you can hear that there are people out there and they're they're either telling you it's not that mm. bad or, mm. you know, um, you're just asking for attention, You've you know, whatever it before. is. You've done this before, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I'm not taking, I'm not falling for this again, whatever. Mm-hmm. At what point is the person in there, even though they're going to, they're going to die if they're left in there, at what point do they give up? At what point do they stop mm-hmm. trying to get the attention of someone on the outside to say help? Mm. And... So I think wow. this is so important that people aren't asking for attention unless they need it. And we're thinking of attention as a bad thing. Yes, it might be upsetting to you. And yes, it might require that you stop what you're doing and try to figure out how to get the locksmith to, you know, get the person out. But that's what we're talking about. Somebody's mm-hmm. actually fighting for their life. Mm-hmm. They're actually fighting for their life, and we have to listen and not roll our eyes or think, Ugh, you've done this so many times, or I just can't anymore with this drama, or whatever it is, whatever the, the non-compassionate response is. That's what we have to do. Mm-hmm. It makes me sad. Just talking about mm-hmm. it makes me sad. You know, hearing, it's like, oh, you know, I, I can feel how someone to use your metaphor in the freezer might be feeling and i can feel how somebody outside that door just being ill-equipped is how i'll put it um can feel so right or or maybe you know they're trying to do eight million things on a deadline and you know and and have a, a ton of other issues going on in their lives and and what what should come across to them as like an emergency just begins to turn into more mm-hmm. demand more annoyance more frustration it's hard sometimes to pull us out of all of the the stress and the work that we're having to do to notice that this is not a so-called cry for attention. This is someone trying to get you to help them save their life. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
The last common misconception we presented, Mark, was the idea that you cannot stop someone who wants to die from killing themselves. You, you definitely can. Uh, and often uh, we know that suicide interventions, uh, often conversation-based, uh, do work. You can de-escalate the person. You don't even have to convince them that life is worth living. Just get them to a place of ambiguity where they have some doubt, some crack in that um, absolute conviction and certainty that they need to die. You just need some ambiguity, reasonable doubt. Uh, and that's often enough to keep them alive. Ultimately, it's a, it's a manner of building connection with that person. Even if that's not an option for whatever reason, and often, unfortunately, it's not, um, being able to bring them to the emergency room to hospitalize them, should be a, that should be a targeted acute intervention because it's strictly to keep them safe. Uh, but that's always an option that's out there, too. Um, now, ideally, if that happens, people are going to get the other help on board pretty soon, too. If, for any reason, you still believe you can't intercede to help someone considering suicide, we implore you to do some research. Take a mental health first aid course, call 988 or a crisis or hotline in your country to ask what steps you can take and what resources are available to protect the life of someone you know and care about. I would say the exact same things that you just said, that for, for someone who, who knows somebody is suicidal and they don't know what to do, push yourself beyond what you think you can do, even if it's scary. Do it anyway. If it doesn't work, do it again. Do it harder. If it still doesn't work, do it differently. And if it still doesn't work, do something else. There's always something else. It, 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 it's just as important for the people who want to help as it is for the people struggling to not give up. truly hope that our podcast brings a little more understanding, helps you better articulate and reflect on your own experience with depression, or better understand how to support someone else who is struggling. If this episode has been of comfort or value to you, know that there are hundreds of others like it in our archive, which you can easily find at our website, givingvoicetodepression.com. And remember, if you're struggling, speak up, even if it's hard. If someone else is struggling, take the time to listen.